All right, so the last time we were together, we discussed the most famous verse in the Bible. So here it is again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so if you missed the two messages that I taught on John chapter three, I really wanna encourage you to go back, download the podcast, go to our website, watch it, listen to it, however you wanna access it. But it's really important that you get the context that's around this most popular verse in the Bible. And so there's so much to love about that verse, but I want to draw your attention to the one word that I have underlined. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, can you shout out that word please? Whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many of you guys really believe that God loves everybody? Everybody. By the way, that was the strongest response out of all three gatherings um, this weekend. But I think it should be stronger because we're talking about God's love. So, yeah, right? God loves everybody. He loves men and women, old and young, rich and poor, as well as people from every culture and people who live on every single continent. God loves everyone. And not only does he love us, he also wants to save everyone. And so why did Christ come? I'll let Jesus answer that question for himself. Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save, what's the last two words there? The lost. So if you're new to church, new to Christianity, Um, You haven't developed a biblical worldview yet. Here's what you need to know. Since humanity has sinned, and since the wages of sin is death, the human race is lost and in desperate need of the salvation that only Jesus can provide. And you say, only Jesus, why only Jesus? That sounds narrow-minded. Well, it's only Jesus because Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so why is Jesus the only way to the Father? It's really simple, because he alone is the Son of God, because he alone died to pay for the sins of the world, and he alone rose again from the, uh, from, from the grave. He alone did that And so no one comes to the Father but by me. And by the way, that includes well-respected, influential, highly educated men like Nicodemus, who we studied in John chapter four, and it also includes those who are ignored and considered social outcasts and who maybe don't have the best education in the world, like the Samaritan woman who we're gonna look at today in John chapter four. So Nicodemus chapter three, now this Samaritan woman in chapter four. So if you are right now looking at John chapter four, verse one, can you say amen so I know you're there? So here we go. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, 
although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so while the Lord was ministering down in Judea, his popularity began to increase more and more in that region. People were flocking to Jesus in great numbers. And guess what? The legalists of the day, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, uh, they heard about the growing popularity of, of Jesus and no doubt, they're now planning to confront him. No doubt, they're now ready uh, to cause trouble and give Jesus a hard time. Now, those, those of you who've never read through the Gospel of John, you're gonna be blown away later in our study how Jesus is gonna go toe-to-toe with these legalists later in the Gospel. But the time for that, it's not right now. And so when the Lord realizes that the Pharisees are getting ready to cause some trouble, he leaves Judea in the south and he heads for Galilee in the north. Now, verse four is a key verse for our study today. It says in John four, verse four, and he, Jesus, had, can you please say the word had? He had to pass through Samaria. And so he's down South, he's down in Judea. Uh, right now, if you can see the word Judea, bottom center left of your screen, just say amen. amen. He's in that region, probably nearer to Jerusalem, the, the capital there, and so he's there. He's heading up to Galilee. So if you see Galilee, top center of your screen, say amen. All right, and so he could have gone three different ways up to Galilee. He could have hung a left, him and his disciples, and caught the Mediterranean coast, like, by the way, uh, myself, Pastor Matt Messiano, and th I think 20, 30 other people are gonna do in May. We're gonna hit the coast, fly into Tel Aviv, and we're gonna head north up the Mediterranean coast and go up to Galilee, and then later in our trip, we're gonna make our way down to Judea, but, but Jesus and his disciples, they could have hung a left. They could have went up the Mediterranean coast up to Galilee, or they could have left the area of Jerusalem, went over to Jericho, which is near the top of the Dead Sea, crossed over the Jordan River. If you see the Dead Sea, can you say amen? So I know you're there. They could have crossed over the Jordan and went up the east side of the Jordan River all the way up into Galilee. But verse four says that he had to pass through Samaria. Why the necessity? I don't think it was because Jesus was in a hurry to get back up to Galilee. And the reason I say that is because we're gonna find out next week in verse 40 that he's gonna spend two days with the Samaritans there in the center of your map. And so no doubt Jesus had planned all that in advance. And so I don't believe he had to go through Samaria because it was the shortest route, even though it was. I don't think that's the reason. I think he had to go through Samaria because listen, he had a divine appointment with a woman who was in need. Why? Because God loves everybody. Now before we get into that divine appointment, I want to discuss with you the historical background to our text. So I've got some explaining to do and I hope you'll stay with me all the way through it because I think it's important. And so it says in verse nine, quote, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. 
The Jews, remember the map, they're, they're living primarily down in Judea, around Jerusalem. They also live up in Galilee. But they have no dealings, according to verse nine, with the Samaritans there in the middle. And so it's obvious from verse nine that even though they were neighbors, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. They avoided one another. But how many of you guys understand that Jesus doesn't really care about the social norms of the day um, when those social norms are based in bitterness? When those social norms are based in racism, when those social norms are based in animosity, when those social norms are based in hatred, how many of you guys understand that Jesus doesn't really care about those social norms, that Jesus, in that respect, was kind of a rebel in the good way, the good sense of the term, and I don't care who doesn't want Jesus to spend time with the Samaritans, if he wants to go and love on the Samaritans, he's gonna do that, why? Because God loves everybody. And so it's still important for us though to discuss the origin of the animosity and the hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, so we can better understand the conversation that the Lord is gonna have um, with the woman at the well. And so right now, we're in the first century AD. I wanna hit the rewind button, and I wanna go back with you guys about a 1,000 years. And so you have King David, a man after God's own heart, and then Solomon, um, at least at that time, the wisest man um, around, and he's... Uh, serving as king and under Solomon's reign, man, Israel just reached the height of its influence and power. And, and then Solomon dies in the 10th century uh, BC. And then after Solomon dies, there's a civil war. There's a civil war, there's a split. And so the 10 northern tribes of Israel split. They're being led by Jeroboam. They split from the two southern tribes of Judah, um, Judah and Benjamin, being led by Rehoboam. And so after that civil war, this is what the map later looked like. And so for many years after the split, you had the southern kingdom, that's the mustard color uh, area, um, called Judah. And of course the capital of that is Jerusalem. And so if you see the top of the mustard color area, Jerusalem, just say amen, so I know you're with me here. So this is after the Civil War. And then um, you have up in the top area, you have the Northern Kingdom, and, and that's called Israel, and the capital of that Northern Kingdom is later on called Samaria. And so throughout their respective histories, you have these kings, kings that are reigning in Judah and you have kings that are reigning in Israel. I hope you're reading through the Old Testament and so maybe some of this is coming back up to your memory and as you're reading through the Old Testament, here's what you find out, that the kings of the southern kingdom, the kings of Judah, well you have some that are good, praise the Lord, but you have some that are bad. But as you're reading through the Bible in the Old Testament, you see <laughs> that all those kings up in the north, all those kings of Israel, all those guys were bad. We're talking 19 to 20 evil kings in all. 
And because of Israel's sin and rebellion, what does God do? God allows the Assyrian Empire, all right, so top center right of your screen. If you see Assyrian Empire, say amen, please. All right, so the Assyrian Empire, they come down and they invade and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And then what did they do? By the way, that started around 733 BC. And so after that happens, the Assyrians, they go to that blue part, right? And they take the vast majority of Israelites out of their land, the conquered people out of their land, and they deport them into other cities around the vast Assyrian empire. And then the Assyrians take foreigners, they take Gentiles, and they move those foreigners, those Gentiles, into the blue area where there are a minority of poor Israelites who are left, and after a while, those Gentiles intermarry with the poor Israelites there in the former northern kingdom, and the offspring of those mixed marriages are half, very important for our study, they are half Gentile and half Israelite. And so this is what's happening, and those half-Gentile and half-Israelite people are known as the Samaritans, named after the capital of the former northern kingdom. I think it's very interesting around the 8th century B.C., during the 8th century B.C., when all this happens, that the Lord protected Judah, the mustard area. He protected Jerusalem from the Assyrian Empire. And so... That's what happens in the eighth century BC. But here's what's really sad. As you continue along the timeline of history, eventually even Judah sins. Judah rebels against the Lord and they receive divine discipline from the Lord. How many of you guys remember the name Nebuchadnezzar? How many of you guys remember the Babylonians? Okay, and so what happens, the beginning of the 6th century BC, is that the Babylonians come in and they invade Judah, they invade Jerusalem, they conquer Jerusalem, they take the inhabitants of Judah, known as the Jews from Judah, and they take them, the Jews, out and, and they deport them to Babylon, modern day Iraq, called the Babylonian captivity. And sadly, the Babylonians destroy the beautiful Jewish temple that Solomon had built. They destroy that temple in 586 BC. But unlike the northern tribes, when the Assyrians took the 10 northern tribes and deported them, they never came back. But when the Babylonians, how many of you guys believe God's a promise keeper, not a promise breaker? So when the Babylonians came and they took the Jews out of Judah, God said, you're gonna come back. And guess what, they did. How many of you guys remember how many years were they in exile? 70 years. And so sure enough, the Jews come back to their land, to Judah, to Jerusalem, and we say praise the Lord for that. And so after the Jews returned from Babylon, the book of Ezra, I hope you're reading through the Old Testament. I hope some of this is coming back. And so the book of Ezra tells us that the Jewish governor, Zerubbabel, he leads the Jews to rebuild the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. Zechariah 4, 6. 
This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How many of you guys ever remember that verse, right? What's the context of that verse? The context is God, through Zechariah the prophet, is encouraging Zerubbabel, the governor of the Jews, rebuild the temple, but you're not gonna be able to rebuild the temple unless you are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, and that is a principle even for today that ladies and gentlemen there's nothing we're going to be able to do in this age of grace there's nothing we're going to be able to do in this church age of any eternal significance unless we are anointed and empowered and filled to overflowing by the holy spirit of god that's the way kingdom work is done you may have talent you may have experience you may have education You may have a dynamic personality, but you need to be anointed and filled to overflowing with the Spirit of God if you're gonna be used in the kingdom of God. The same principle applies. And so the Jews and Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple and completed it around 516 BC. And then later in history, I hope you're reading the Old Testament because you get to Nehemiah And you find out that Nehemiah was commissioned by God to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And those walls were finished around 444 BC. And so what's the point? The point, you got Judah in the south and Jerusalem, and you got Samaria here in the north. The point is that the Samaritans resisted, opposed both projects. They resisted, they opposed the rebuilding of the Jewish temple by Zerubbabel, and they resisted and they opposed the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah. And then during the fifth century BC, with a rival spirit, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim where Jesus and the disciples have just arrived in our Bible in John chapter four. Fifth century BC, with a rival spirit, the Samaritans build their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they began to have these religious practices there. That Samaritan temple stood for centuries, but then fast forward all the way to 111 BC, right around there, and what happens is you have a Jewish leader Um, from the family of the Maccabees, and he comes up, and the Jews destroy the Samaritan temple, again, around 111 BC. I said all of that (laughs) to say this. By the time you get to Jesus in the first century AD, the animosity, the hatred, the bitterness between the Jews down in Judea and the Samaritans Um, in Samaria, man, it ran deep, and it went back for hundreds of years. Many of the Jews down in Judea, they called their neighbors to the north, the Samaritans, quote-unquote half-breeds. They called them half-breeds because they were half-Gentile, half-Israelite, and the Jews rejected the religious practices um, of the Samaritans which the Samaritans still performed on Mount Gerizim, even though their temple was destroyed about 150 years before the time of Jesus Christ, okay? So that's the historical background to the text. But despite all the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, if you're listening to me right now, say amen. Amen. Despite all the animosity, the hatred, 
between these two groups, you need to know this, Jesus Christ loved both groups. Why? Because God loves everybody. And I keep emphasizing that because I want us at Calvary PSL to have the same heart that God has. I want us to love everybody, rich and poor, poor, old and young, right? People of every culture live on every continent. We need to let our light shine by loving people the way God loves people. And so this is why Jesus had to pass through Samaria in verse four, because he had to keep his divine appointment with a woman in need. And now we pick it up in verse five. It says, so he came. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now that's going all the way back to Genesis. I hope you're reading through the Old Testament because I am not giving the historical background of all that. <laughs> all right, verse six. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. By the way, Jesus was wearied. Do you see that? You guys know Jesus got tired? You say, how did he get tired? I thought he was God. Yeah, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. So he got tired and he's wearied from his journey and he was sitting beside the well and it was about, end of verse six, it was about the what hour? The sixth hour. And so after traveling for hours that morning, now it's high noon. It's 12 p.m. And so Jesus and his disciples, they arrive at Sychar, which is located, middle of your map, middle of Samaria, right there, somewhere between Mount Ebal um, and Mount um, Gerizim. That's where Sychar is, that's where Jesus is, that's where Jacob's well is, right in that area. He decides to take a break, and he knows, man, my divine appointment is about to start soon. She has no idea what's gonna happen here in a few minutes, but I do. This is why I came here. And so, hey, disciples, why don't you guys go into town and get some lunch, and I'm gonna hang out here at the well by myself. And so now we pick it up in verse seven. It says now in verse seven that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, you guys, everybody look at me, please. What time of day is it again? It's noon. High noon. It's hot. And she's coming by herself. And as I was digging in, studying this week, I found out that the women, they would go to the well either early in the morning or later in the day. And the reason why, there's probably lots of reasons they would go in groups. One is they'd go in the morning because they wanted to avoid the heat of the day. Two, they went in groups probably for safety reasons. Three, they went in groups because we all know that women love to talk about lots of stuff, <laughs> right? Oh boy, I'm gonna get some emails about that one. <laughs> but it's true. But did you know she's alone? She's by herself and she's going in the middle of the day when no one ever goes. Why? Because she's a social outcast. Because the people in her area have this self-righteous attitude where they're looking down their nose at her, as you're gonna find out, because of her past life. But how many of you guys are glad that Jesus doesn't have that attitude? And so a woman from Samaria came to draw water 
And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now that shocked her right there because I also found out as I was studying that it wasn't right, it was against the social norms for a rabbi to speak to a woman in public that he didn't know. But how many of you guys know that Jesus doesn't really care about social norms that are based in stuff that's not right? And so, give me a drink, verse eight, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They went to get lunch. And verse nine says that the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a what? A Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew, look, 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 look at this, this is good. The gift, never forget, the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, what kind of water? Living water. And so the woman's interest is now piqued. Her curiosity is piqued. She says in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And then Jesus said to her, classic, classic verse here. Everyone who drinks of this water, from Jacob's well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what kind of life? Eternal life. And so this is awesome. Jesus sees this woman and she's drawing water from Jacob's well and he uses that water as a metaphor for the gift of eternal life. D.A. Carson, um, regarding all this, wrote, and I quote, in this chapter, the water is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and savior of the world can provide. And so ladies and gentlemen, I have really good news for you this afternoon. Everybody who's watching right now, I have really good news for you this afternoon. And that is that when a person hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, what's the heart of the gospel? The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he came and he died to pay for our sins on the cross and then he rose again the third day victorious over sin and death. That's the heart of the gospel. And so when someone hears the gospel and they change their mind about their sin, in other words, my sin is wrong. My sin has offended God. The wages of my sin is death. And I really need to be forgiven. When they change their mind about their sin, when they change their mind about themselves, I can't save myself. There's no good work I could ever do to earn eternal life. I need the Savior. When they change their mind about them, their sin, when they change their mind about themselves, when they change their mind about the Savior, Jesus, he's not a religious teacher or some, some um, a religious figure from the past. No, he is God in the flesh. 
He is the son of God. And, and, and the son of God came to seek and save the lost. And that person comes to the place where they say, I am lost and only Jesus can save me. But why? Because he alone paid the death penalty in my place on the cross and rose from the grave. And when they put their faith, their trust in Jesus, receiving him as the savior and the Lord of their lives, here's what happens, glorious day, is that the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of them, forgives, cleanses all of their sin and makes them alive spiritually. That's what God does. And so living water is a beautiful metaphor for the eternal life that Christ came to offer. And so all of us who are saved, all of us who are born again, we are really, really grateful for eternal life. But for a moment here, I wanna leave the text and I wanna talk to you about abundant life. You see, after we're saved, we're also thankful for the abundant life that Jesus gives. All right, so we're, we're thankful for the eternal life, praise the Lord, but after we're saved, we're really grateful, we're really thankful for the abundant life that Jesus gives. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus said this. He said that the thief, how many of you guys know that there's a devil? Yeah, there's a devil, just read the headlines. <laughs> there's absolutely a devil. He's called, the, in Ephesians chapter two, the prince of the power of the air, and he's vicious. And if you're born again this afternoon, you need to know there's a big old target on your back. And like Peter, the devil wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to chew you up and spit you out. He wants to ruin your life, he wants to ruin your marriage, he wants to ruin your family. But how many of you are grateful that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? Christ is greater. So you don't have to be conquered by fear. Christ is with you. And the thief comes. He's gonna come. Get ready. He's coming. And he comes to steal and he comes to kill and he comes to destroy. But thank God Jesus said, I came that they may have life, look at this, and have it, what? Abundantly. Have it abundantly. And so this is what I love about Jesus is that he not only gives us eternal life, which includes that amazing um, uh, life on the new earth, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that amazing new life on the new earth, right, in the future. He didn't just come to give us eternal life. He came to give us abundant life, which includes life on this earth right now. And so through the abundant life that Jesus Christ gives, he satisfies what I like to call soul thirsts, all right? We have certain needs as human beings. Some have called it soul needs. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about acceptance. I'm talking about peace. I'm talking about purpose in life. I'm talking about joy soul needs, soul thirsts. And when we allow Jesus Christ to primarily meet those needs, here's the beautiful truth, is that he meets those needs 
to the point where we're able to minister to other people out of the overflow of the abundant life that Jesus Christ gives. And so this is important. I really want you to follow along here. I know I'm, I'm using some metaphors, but there's reality behind the metaphor. You see, here's what happens. If you try to get your soul needs primarily met from another human being, love, acceptance, peace, purpose, and joy, if you're trying to primarily get those needs met from another human being, I know two things. Number one, you are becoming a very needy person, and number two, you are wearing this person out. And so here's a better idea, born-again Christian. Why don't you grow in your walk and your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Why don't you go to him in the morning or in the evening or whenever you spend time with him, right, and just allow him in, in his presence to fill you up, right, and, and give you primarily from him love and acceptance and peace and purpose and joy to the point where you're overflowing and now instead of gimme, 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 I need, I need, I need, now what you're doing is you're living life saying what can I do for you? How can I bless you? What can I give to you? Let me minister to you because Jesus Christ has given me abundant life. He came to give eternal life. Praise the Lord for that but he also came to give abundant life. And so back to the text now. Jesus used the beautiful metaphor of living water in chapter four for the eternal life, the gift of eternal life that he came to offer. But this lady, she's just not getting it. And so she says now in verse 15, by the way, how many of you guys are glad that Jesus is so patient with us? The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, by the way, put your seatbelts on here. Um, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Did I tell you guys to put your seatbelts on? And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. By the way, quick side note, she's living with this guy. And right now, if you are living with somebody and having sex with that person, don't say you're married before God, because you're not. Jesus said you're not. He makes a distinction between marriage and living together. Ooh, it's quiet right now. <laughs> I even lost my place in the Bible, where am I? <laughs> 19, thank you. Yeah, let me back up though, 18. So you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow. Why do you gotta be so judgy, Jesus? 
Now, I'm gonna get to why he's bringing up her past here in a moment. There's a reason. But before I do that, I just wanna say that this lady was on a quest for fulfillment. And here's her mistake. She's trying to find her fulfillment primarily in men. That doesn't work. And so while trying to quench her soul thirsts for love, acceptance, peace, purpose, joy, she's gone through five marriages and now she's living with a man she's not married to. And so like the song says, she's looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, and she's living in sin right now. But here's what I love about this text, here's what I love about Jesus. He still loves her. You guys get that? Why? Because God loves everybody. That's the heart I want us to have as a church. I don't want us to become some kind of self-righteous church where we're looking down critically at, no, that's not the heart of Jesus. And so he loves her, and because of his great love for her, he tells her the truth. Listen, that's what you do when you really love somebody. If you really love somebody, you don't tell them what they wanna hear, you tell them what they need to hear. And what does she need to hear? She need to hear the truth, and the truth is this, she's lost, and she needs the Savior. And that's why the Lord brought up her past. And so some people would say, you know, why do you have to pry into her personal life? Why are you being so judgmental, Jesus? Why can't you just leave well enough alone? Why can't you just live and let live? But the Lord knew that a person will never see their need for the Savior until they realize they're a sinner. Um, I really like Warren Wearsby. He's now with Jesus in heaven, has been for some time. Um, if you want a good commentary where he keeps an evangelical, great evangelical scholar, but he keeps the cookies on the bottom shelf and he's super, super practical. And so if you're needing some help in your devotions, I recommend Warren Wearsby. But I love this quote um, about this whole passage here. Warren Wearsby said, quote, there can be no conversion without conviction. And so as I've said before, a person has to admit that they're lost before they can be found. A person has to admit they're a sinner before they see their need for salvation. A person has to admit, realize they're guilty before they can be forgiven. They have to come under conviction before they can be converted. And for purposes of our study today, they have to see their need um, for living water, in other words, they have to be thirsty before they see their need for living water. Look at verse 19 now. The woman said to him, uh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now that's true, but Jesus is so much more. And then she says in verse 20, our father's religion our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so what is this lady doing here? Here's what I think. I think she's changing the subject. Why? Because he just confronted her with her sin. You see, when conviction of sin comes upon a lost person, they often try to divert the conversation to religious 
or theological questions or issues. Why? Because it's a lot better, right, to debate a religious or theological issue than to face your sin. And so what's happening here is she brings up this thing about where people ought to worship, uh, most likely to steer the conversation away from her sin. In other words, she couldn't take the heat, so now she's trying to get out of the kitchen, and people do the same thing today. When you try to share truth with them, you try to share the gospel with them, what, what, what often happens, like in the middle of the conversation, what happens is people are like, well, wait a minute, where did Cain get his wife? Or, or wait a minute, how did Noah get all those animals on the ark? Or, or wait a minute, what about the heathens who, on the island who've never heard the gospel, right? And so what do they do? They divert. Why? Because conviction is coming. Can I just encourage you guys? Man, and I believe there's a difference between false guilt and conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you're experiencing conviction of the Holy Spirit, I know it hurts, I know it's uncomfortable, but you ought to welcome that. Just welcome it. Don't run from it. Welcome it. And so, um, now it's important to have answers to those questions that I mentioned earlier, and I've given you some of the answers from this platform, but, but listen, as you're sharing with somebody, if they try to divert off to some kind of religious debate, as best as you can, as soon as you can, get back to Jesus. Get back to the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, she wanted to talk about our fathers in verse 20, but Jesus wanted to talk about the Father. She wanted to talk about religion, but Jesus now, he's about to talk to her about relationship, okay? So look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the who? The Jews. Okay, so why in the world did Jesus say that? Why did he say salvation is of the Jews? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you why, and I'm just gonna read the Bible to you. Okay, this, this is, um, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. This is Paul's letter to the Romans. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. So, so the context here is that Paul is a Jew, and he comes to know Jesus Christ as his Messiah, Savior, Lord like thousands of other Jews in the first century, but most of Israel, they're rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And it's breaking Paul's heart. And he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And then Paul says this. Check it out on the screen. He says, to them belong the patriarchs. Here it is, sports fans. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is, what does it say there? God. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Christ who is God over all, blessed forevermore, 
Amen. And so the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah, the Christ, is going to come from the Jewish race. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah specifically. And Jesus came. The lion of the tribe of Judah came, right, from the Jewish race. But he wasn't just a man. He's God. Fully man, fully God. And so because God knew that we're sinners in need of salvation because God knew that we can't you know, um, earn eternal life by keeping the law or doing good works. What did he do? Here's what he did. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, the son of God. He left heaven and he came to earth. And what did he do? Through the incarnation, he added a human nature to his already eternally existing divine nature. He wrapped himself in human flesh, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, touched thousands of lives, performed amazing miracles. And then he went to a cross as the Lamb of God willingly, and he hung between heaven and earth, and he paid for our sins, bleeding for us. He died in our place because the wages of sin is death. He was our substitute. He died, and three days later, he rose from the grave. That's why Jesus told the Samaritan woman salvation is a, of the Jews, because as Paul said, as a man, he came from their race, the Jewish race, and as God, he is blessed forevermore. But sadly, John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. It's like, no, thank you. Like I'm afraid some people right now who've been listening to me are saying, no, thank you. That's scary. He came into his own, his own received him not. Now how serious is it to reject Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Lord? How serious are we talking about? Look at what Jesus said to religious leaders of his day. Unless you believe that I am he, the Messiah, Lord, you will die in your sins. And so man, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, and he loves everybody. Look at verse 23 now. It says in verse 23, he tells the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers are gonna worship the Father, I love this, in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so I love the fact that Jesus, what does he do? And he's so patient, right? He, he's drawing this lady's um, attention away from a place to a person, to God, who is spirit. And I love the fact that he told her that those who worship God, um, they must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit, in spirit and in truth. Now, in describing a Christian's BC days, before Christ's days, here's what Paul tells the Ephesians. He says, and you were dead. Can you guys please say the word dead? dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among 
whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. It sounds like a pretty dismal picture, right? We're in our BC days, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're following the course of the world. We're following the devil. We're, we're following, um, trying to just satisfy me, 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 um, of the lusts of our flesh. And we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then, gloriously, Paul says this right here, but God, dismal picture, but how many of you are glad that God intervened in his grace? You see it? Don't ever let the wonder of this get beyond you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's amazing. That's amazing grace. And those of you who've been born again, you know what Paul's talking about. Those of you who've been born again, you know what Paul's talking about because you know that in your BC days, you absolutely were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you are so grateful that God, being rich in mercy, he made you alive together with Christ. And when you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God came inside of you and cleansed you of all of your sins and he gave you new spiritual life. By grace, grace you have been saved and now you can worship God who is spirit in spirit and in truth why because he made you alive spiritually last two verses it says now in John chapter 4 verse 25 the lady looks at him and says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he's gonna tell us all things. Now look, look, it doesn't get any clearer than this, last verse. Jesus said to her, and I want you guys to go ahead and finish the verse, go ahead. There it is. I, who speak to you, am he. Can you imagine the look on her face? Right? And apparently he convinced her because we see that her view of Jesus, in verse nine, she called him a Jew, that's true. In verse 19, she calls him a prophet, that's true, but so much more. And in verse 29, we're gonna find out next week, She's going to say, could this be the Christ, the Messiah? And so we'll check that out next week.